As we pray this morning, I would like to read a couple of verses from Psalm 116. I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my supplications, because He has inclined His ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon Him as long as I live. Father, we do call upon You this morning, thanking You that You have ears to hear and eyes to see, and that You know what is in our hearts even before we ask You. We thank You, Lord, that You know the beginning from the ending, and that You're the God of this universe from the day of its creation to the day of its perishing. And we look forward to the time when we will all fellowship together in Your presence for eternity. Father, You have placed us here for a certain time in which to serve You. I pray that these moments we share together here this morning will be moments of true fellowship in which Your Word will be strong in our ears, will serve as a lamp unto our feet, and that You will keep us for the glory of Your name. We ask, Lord, that as we also focus at the end of class in, in our time of prayer, that it'll be a time in which we are of one mind and one accord to see what it is that you will do on behalf of these, Lord, who have great need as they serve you. Bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to Judges chapter 18, I'd like to read beginning at verse 27. We have gotten into a bit of a sticky part of the book of Judges. <laughs> Not that there are, aren't other sticky parts, but um, this part in particular as we come to the end of the book. We've been looking at the displacing of the tribe of Dan. What we have noted so far is that the tribe of Dan, or at least a portion of the tribe of Dan, which was located in this up region of the upper Sorek Valley. The Sorek is a river that flows down out of here. <laughs> well, I use the word river advisedly, a kind of a creek, a dry good part of the year. They have a group of 600 men and their families has been migrating north, and they're going to be migrating all the way up into the upper Hula Valley here and settling at this place here called Dan. And that's the story we've been reading about in the 18th chapter of the book of Judges. Beginning at verse 27, Then they took what Micah had made, and the priest who belonged to him, and came to Laish, to a people quiet and secure, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and they burned the city with fire. And there was no one to deliver them, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. And it was in the valley which was near Beth Rehob. And they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan their father, who was born in Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. And the sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe <coughs> of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made, all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. So you remember that the spies had been sent out by the tribe and they had come to the house of this man Micah. And in the previous chapter, the 17th chapter of Judges, we had read the story of this man Micah who had stolen some silver from his mother and then he admitted to his mother that he had the silver when she put a curse on whoever had stolen it. And then she said, well, let's take the money and make a graven image. And of course, the image was supposed to be an image of Yahweh, of God. 
And so they made this image, and we're not told what the image looked like, but we can surmise it was probably some sort of a calf form, which was very common. And then this Levite happened to be traveling, and he came to the house, and the man discovered he was an unemployed Levite, and so he invited him to be priest to his graven image. And so that's the way we read the, the 17th chapter. Then in the 18th chapter, these, these five spies were sent out by the tribe of Dan to try to find a better place for them to live. Because uh, if you will remember, the tribe of Dan lived in this area in here, but they were supposed to occupy all this area over here, but they never did. The Philistines still occupied it, and they had never displaced the Philistines. So they were crowded in this little corner, uh, backed up against Ephraim, Judah, and Benjamin here. And so they felt, well, sort of like Hitler, you know, Adolf Hitler, when he wrote Mein Kampf, he said that what what Germany lacked was Lebensraum. It didn't have adequate living space for the number of people living in Germany. So he was going to take it away from Poland and Czechoslovakia and Russia and told everybody ahead of time exactly what he was going to do, then proceeded to do it. Well, Dan felt the same crowding here, and so they sent some spies out to see if they could find some place up here where there would be empty land to which at least a portion of the tribe of Dan could go to relieve the crowding. And so the spies, somewhere in the hill country of Ephraim, we don't know exactly where, came to the house of Micah. And they were introduced to this graven image and, and to the Levite, and they were very impressed. They were blessed by the Levite, and when they went north, they found this lovely land up here and a city which was occupied by people who weren't very warlike. And they thought, wow, you know, this is, uh, this is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So they went back south to their to their people down here in the Dan area and 600 warriors and their family get together and, and they're marching north now to go up and uh, capture this area. But they stop at Micah's house and they take away Micah's graven image and they take away his Levite priest and the whole crew now goes up and they capture this, this region up in here and they rebuild the city. Uh, Laish was right there where it says Dan, that was Laish. They captured the city, tore it down, rebuilt it according to their dictates, and settled in this area here. And we're told in this passage that they gave credit to the God which they had captured from Micah's house. They believed that this graven image had brought them their, their easy success, their quick victory over these Sidonians. Sidon is a city over here on the coast, up here, uh, as part of Phoenicia. Phoenicia is the strip of land up here. The Phoenicians were a Semitic people who were very, very pagan, and they had established Laish over here as sort of a colony. But there had been no connection between Laish and Sidon for many years, so the city was easily captured by the Danites. The question that comes out of this is, here they are, they've, they've taken this image, and they're bowing down to this image, and they have this Levite as a priest of this image. They're worshiping falsely, and yet they have great success. They quickly overcome the Hula Valley. They defeat these Sidonians who are living at Laish, and they establish themselves in this beautiful land. And I mentioned to you before that the valley of the Hula Valley is a very lovely area. Uh, it's very green. It's very moist. The Jordan River sources flow through it. There's waterfall. It's, it's just a delightful area. And so they they've kind of felt like they'd come to paradise on earth here. Why is it that many who hold to false beliefs seem to live very successful lives. And you can probably think of certain groups even in America today who have become profoundly successful, although they, they believe true heresy. Why is this? 
Well, we know from Scripture that, this, that God sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. The sun shines on the righteous, the sun shines on the unrighteous. The birds sing in the ears of the righteous, and the birds sing in the ears of the unrighteous. If allowed by God, Satan will give apparent success to people who believe falsely. He will do all he can to give success to people who believe falsely so that they will be absolutely confirmed in their false belief and others looking in will say, wow, they must be believing truly because look how they are blessed. Unfortunately, even in our Protestant evangelical community, there are those who argue that the sign of God's blessing is material success. If you're doing well financially and your family seems to be together and your kids are not rebels, then, then somehow you must be a good Christian. But if you're your child rebels or, or your business collapses or, or you get sick with cancer that somehow you're not doing God's will. Well, you know, that's just not scriptural. But there are people who actually believe that. Why didn't God bring immediate discipline on the tribe of Dan as they followed after this false God? Why did he allow them to continue in this belief? Remember when Israel was in the wilderness under Moses, Soon as they deviated, God hit them with a plague or fire from heaven or something. Well, I think part of the answer lies in the fact that God knows the future and he knows the hearts of all people. Therefore, he knows what will and what won't turn people from false beliefs to the true faith. He is a God of mercy. And I think sometimes he withholds judgment on, in this life because he knows that these people face eternal damnation. Now, I'm not saying that judgment will not fall in this life, too, because it does. But sometimes it doesn't seem to, at least from our perspective. In Genesis 6-3, we read that rather often quoted verse that the Spirit of God will not always strive with men. There is a point when those who refuse to obey God are turned over to the natural dissipation that comes from their depraved and reprobate ways. The Danites turned their back upon the truth and they chased after a lie. But the word of God was very near because we read in this uh, particular chapter uh, passage at the end in verse 31 it tells us that they worshiped this graven image all the time that the house of the Lord was in Shiloh. In other words, here they were chasing after this false concept of God all the time that the word of God was very near, even at Shiloh. Disobedience and compromise had dulled their hearing and blinded their eyes so that they couldn't any longer distinguish between truth and error. Think about it for a minute. How many people do you know or have you become acquainted with at some point in your life who do not believe correctly and there is nothing you can do or say which will even slightly move them off of what they believe because they're absolutely convinced that they are believing correctly. Rather than being the preacher of truth, this Levite, whose name is Jonathan, helps to perpetuate the lie. He is, he is so honored at being the priest for a whole tribe that he will continue serving this, this pagan concept of God throughout apparently the rest of his life and will found a generation uh, or, or a lineage of priests that will continue to serve this false image of God. 
In application, we can understand, I think, how this is applied historically to America. In the liberal churches of America today, those which are known as mainline churches because they trace their ancestries all the way back to the early history of this country, and many of these churches today, if you could go back in their history 100 years or 150 years, and talk to some of the ministers of the, within those churches and describe to them what those, that very denomination believes today, they would be absolutely appalled. They would roll over in their graves, as it were, to hear how far the church has departed from the truth. Churches in which the gospel of Jesus Christ was pro proclaimed powerfully just in the 19th century have now reverted to the social gospel and no longer is atonement significant. Who needs atonement? We're all okay. And they no longer talk about the lordship of Jesus Christ because always are going to get people to heaven. You don't want to become narrow and bigoted just because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't really, of course, mean that. He really meant, I am a way, a truth, and a life, you know, because Buddha is also a way, and Muhammad is also a way. I mean, it's sickening, but that's what you hear from the pulpits of some of our mainline churches in America today. Let me read from the 10th chapter of Romans, beginning at verse 8. Romans 10, beginning at verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you can and confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the, are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. This passage is often, of course, read within a missionary context, and rightly so. But I think it also applies in, in all contexts where the Word of God is proclaimed. And if the preacher does not preach the Word of God, what will be the condition of the flock? We'll be lost. We'll believe a lie. We'll be satisfied in a lie. And of course, if that lie fits very nicely with our pluralistic culture in America today, so much the better, right? Things never really improved spiritually within the tribe of Dan. Following the era of the judges, which you come to the end of the era of the judges when you end the book of Judges and, and also the book of Ruth, and you move on into the life of a man by the name of Samuel, who was also a judge, and then later on during his uh, career, he anoints Saul to become the first king within Israel. And then you have a 120-year period in which you have Saul, David, and Solomon. And that is the period of what is called the United Monarchy, when they, all of Israel was united under a single king. And all the way from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south 
was united together, all the 12 tribal regions were united together under a, a single monarch, Saul at first, then David, and, and then Solomon. And of course, in the case of David, he expanded the borders way beyond Dan and Beersheba, conquering way up into the north, clear even to the Euphrates River. During that period of time, the tabernacle was established at Jerusalem, and then the temple was built by Solomon. And so the worship of all Israel became focused in Jerusalem at the temple of God. And I think during that time, that did impact the tribal area of Dan to some extent. Probably they, they felt drawn towards this common center, a kind of a centripetal force here, drawing everybody in towards the, the temple in Jerusalem. However, uh, with the death of Solomon, you have the breakup of the kingdom because Solomon's son Rehoboam decides that he's going to uh, deal with Israel more harshly than his father did and therefore this other young man by the name of Jeroboam takes away ten of the tribes of Israel and you have the division of Israel into a, a, a northern kingdom up here and a southern kingdom down here. During that period of time when the divided kingdom occurs which is the last kingdom in Israel at least uh, before the captivity we discover that cultic worship was reinstated, particularly in the northern kingdom. In, I'd like to read a passage from 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 12, beginning at verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set one up in Bethel, and the other he set up in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places, made priests from among all the people who were not even of the sons of Levi. So you see the cultic proclivity returns. In this case, of course, it was initiated by Jeroboam. Jeroboam was afraid that if all of Israel worshipped at Jerusalem, they would think after a while that, you know, maybe... Maybe Jeroboam's not the right, right king, and maybe Rehoboam is the real king, and maybe we should be united, not divided. And so he decided that he would set up a golden calf image at Bethel here, which is north of Jerusalem in the tribal area uh, on the border between Benjamin and Ephraim, and that he would set another one up in, where? Well, Dan. Why not Dan? Dan's in the north. Uh, Dan has had cultic proclivities in the past, so why not continue this whole idea? And so Dan continues to be a center of cultic worship even on into the divided kingdom. Now, one of the things that is fascinating from Scripture, I think, is to discover something rather ominous about all of this. Let me read to you from the seventh chapter of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, 
so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do no harm to the earth or sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, meaning Ephraim, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Whoops. No Dan. No Dan. Whatever all that means, God knows, but it's rather ominous that in the end the tribe of Dan no longer exists or is not at least listed there. Does this mean that the tribe of Dan went its own way forever following pagan cultic beliefs until it <laughs> disappears as a tribe and no longer exists? Well, whatever the meaning of it all is and whatever is the meaning of the 144,000, that is, of course, debated back and forth by scholars, it does seem to indicate that the tribe of Dan went too far and became totally reprobate. Well, that brings us to the 19th chapter. and <laughs> Things do not improve as we move into the 19th chapter of the book of Judges. The 19th, 20th, and 21st chapters of the book of Judges deal with civil war and the causes of that civil war. I'd like to read the first nine verses of chapter 19. Now, it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the country of hill country of Ephraim who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem, Bethlehem of Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him, and she went away from him to her father's house, house in Bethlehem in Judah and was there for a period of four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back taking with him his servant and a pair of donkeys. So she brought him to her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him. And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank, he ate and drank, and lodged there. Now it came about on the fourth day that they got up early in the morning, and he prepared to go. And the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Sustain yourself with a piece of bread, and afterward you may grow, go. So both of them sat down and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Please be willing to spend the night and let your heart be merry. Then the man arose to go, but the father-in-law urged him so that he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose to go early in the morning. And the girl's father said, said Please sustain yourself and wait until afternoon. Uh, so both of them ate. And when the man arose to go along with his concubine and his servant, the father-in-law, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold now, the day has drawn to a close. Please spend the night. Lo, the day is coming to an end. Spend the night here that your heart may be merry. 
then tomorrow you may arise early for your journey so that you may go home. These next three chapters have within them several truths, of course, that can be extracted, as you can from virtually every passage of Scripture. But I think two of the most important truths that are highlighted in, in these chapters are, first of all, the how, how depraved humans can become when they absolutely reject God and they reject His Word. And secondly, I think it illustrates to us the heinous nature of civil war. There is no worse kind of war than civil war. This section opens and it closes with the same observation. There was no king in Israel in those days. Again, I think I emphasized this before. The people had no political king. But as we study these passages, we discover that they did not acknowledge God as their spiritual king either. And thus, thus what you have in Israel is not just political anarchy, but you also have spiritual anarchy. And when you put political anarchy and spiritual anarchy together, you have a very, very serious situation. A situation, I don't think, in which any of us would ever wish to live. And we see this as we go through this particular chapter, 19 in particular. God had promised to his people, including the tribe of Dan and including the tribe of Levi and including Judah and Ephraim and all these tribes that are mentioned and tribal areas that are mentioned, God had promised them peace and security in a land of their own on the condition that they listen to his word and obey it. That's the condition. Hear and obey and you will dwell in peace and security in this land forever, as long as, of course, the earth should last. Peace and order would have been maintained if the priests and the tribal elders had carried out their responsibilities of proclaiming and enforcing the word of God. And then if the people had been in submission to obedient leadership, then all of it would have worked according to the divine proclamation. However, authority broke down in the land because the leadership deviated from God's clearly defined plan. The people willingly followed suit. And this is portrayed for us so graphically, I think, in uh, the 34th chapter of Ezekiel. I'd like to read a few verses from the 34th chapter of Ezekiel because this portrays a very, very sad picture. Ezekiel 34, beginning at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy to those and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. And they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered throughout 
all the mountains and on every high hill, and my flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. That, of course, is a spiritual picture that he is talking about there. He's talking about Israel being without shepherds. And, of course, Ezekiel writes at a time after not only has the northern kingdom been destroyed and overrun by the Assyrians and occupied by all kinds of pagan people who would intermarry with the Jews and create what were known as the Samaritans, but the southern kingdom has been overrun by Babylon and they've been carried off into captivity along with Ezekiel himself and there he is writing in this condition of captivity. Why is it so disastrous for Israel? Because Israel has no shepherds who were watching the flock and feeding the flock and healing the flock and caring for the flock, but only shepherds who were ripping off the flock. And of course, that was the way it was in Jesus' day, wasn't it? He talks to the Pharisees and calls them whited sepulchers. And, you know, and he talks about Israel in his time as sheep without a shepherd. And, and, and so whether it be in the 6th century before Christ or in the time of Christ, or if it be in America today, where pastors stand in the pulpit and talk about politics or something else and don't ever proclaim the word of the Lord, or where they don't even use the name Jesus because it might offend somebody. Those people are just as lost as Israel was in Babylon or as the Israelites were in the days of Jesus. And that's what's happening to Israel in the days of the judges. The infection of disobedience festered and spread through Israel like gangrene. The horrid putridness became obvious through a heinous deed that we'll be reading about in the later part of the 19th chapter that was performed on two people that we would never even have heard of if it hadn't been for this, this surfacing of this vileness at this moment in the history of Israel. The story begins, as we read in this chapter, with a Levite. Huh. Interesting, right? Another Levite here. And, and the scripture tells us he lives in the back country of Ephraim, you know, off in the boonies someplace, not, not in one of the major towns. How he came to know this woman from Bethlehem, we don't know. But what we do discover that he took her as a concubine, which means a second-class wife. Concubinage was widely accepted and practiced in the ancient world. All through the ancient Middle East and in many parts of the world, concubinage was practiced. And of course, what we discover, and it, it's kind of shocking sometimes, is it was also practiced by some of the great men of Israel, such as David and Solomon on a massive scale. The status of a concubine was usually higher than that of a mere servant but lower than that of a true wife. The only good thing that happened to her, well, I shouldn't say the only thing, but one of the good things that happened to her was that her sons were co-equal in inheritance with sons of the wife. So a concubine's children stood on same, sons at least, stood at the same level as the sons of a full wife. Whatever the arguments may be for accepting concubinage, and they would say, well, it's better for some lady to be a concubine than to never get married, or ta-da, ta-da, ta-da. Whatever one would say about it, you go through Scripture and you will find God never condones it. Never condones it. 
not even, of course, in the case of David and Solomon, as great as they were. In fact, God had proclaimed, and we read it in Deuteronomy, he said, my king shall not multiply wives unto himself. And yet they did. God had made it very, very clear, beginning clear back at the time of the Garden of Eden, that his plan was for one man to marry one woman for life and with all sexual relations to occur within that single relationship, nothing else. And of course, you and I live in an age today in America where that is looked upon not only as Victorian, <laughs> but as downright anthropoid or, you know, something. You know. Of course, you go back that far in you know, cave days, why well, it probably didn't exist <laughs> either. But I think that's where we're at today, is going back to caves in terms of people's mentality. But that's the way God proclaimed it to be. And of course, God never gets out of date. How can God get out of date? He lives outside of time. We discover in verse 2 of this particular passage that he's married this, taken this woman in concubinage, which is an official relationship. I mean, this isn't just a live-in thing. This is an official relationship because you remember we read down further, he's called her husband and her father is called his father-in-law. So there's, this is a kind of a a marriage-type deal here as, as it's viewed legally. We discover here that she plays the harlot. We aren't told why. Simply that she plays the harlot and probably out of fear of retribution, she doesn't come home to him. She flees back to her father's house in Judah because she is afraid of what will happen to her as a result of her infidelity. Well, the man thought upon this for a while. We're told for four months. And then he decides to go down to Bethlehem to woo her into returning to him. Obviously, he cared for her. Obviously, she contributed something to his home. We are not, we're not told anything of a wife here, although you would think they'd have to have a wife in order to have a concubine, but whatever the situation is, he decides not to hold her infidelity against her. Maybe he recognized that he was responsible for it. We, we don't know. We don't, none of those things are uh, described for us in here. The scripture tells us that he spoke kindly to her and that he demonstrated the genuineness of his concern by bringing two donkeys with him. She might have said three, counting him, but anyway. <laughs> she brought, he brought two donkeys with him anyway and you might say, well, what does that say? Well, it says that he's inviting her to ride back with him home. Now, that's an honor. That's an honor that usually was given to only to women who were either the full wife of somebody or the mother of somebody. All other women generally had to walk while the dominant male rode because he was, you know, chief of the clan or of the family or whatever, you know, time to deal. It was a very male-dominated society. We have to understand that the scripture was written within a certain social economic context. And that doesn't mean God ordained that context in all of its uh, manifestations. Certainly we know from scripture God does not ordain uh, a society in which women are treated as if they were very, very inferior to the males, or as in Jesus' day, women being referred to as if they were no better than the animals, or even worse. That was not of God. But nevertheless, he spoke through that society. I mean, God couldn't speak through a perfect society because none exists. 
So we, we can't, just simply because that is the society through which Jesus or God spoke, doesn't mean we should make that society and hold it up to how we should live. And there are unfortunately people in, quote, Protestant churches today in America who sort of think that because the males in the Old Testament kind of lorded it over the females, that that's God's plan for the man. In our society today, which is not true, well, it would seem that the father or girl was happy to see the guy come. It was no honor for him to have a disgraced daughter living in his household. And so I'm sure he was glad to give her back to her husband. Go with him. And probably to impress his son-in-law with how happy he was and to make sure he really wanted to take her home, why, he kept him there. He kept whining and dining him, whining and dining him, whining and dining him. And he was whined and dined for four days. And he kept trying to leave. And he kept saying, well, you know, why don't you sit down? Let's eat for a while. Let's discuss. Now, in those days, we're not talking about a Pop-Tart breakfast here, you know. <laughs> this is not grab it out of the toaster and jam it in your mouth while you're driving down the freeway kind of deal, you know. In those days, they ate like you're supposed to eat. You sit back, you relax, you have good conversation, you enjoy your food, you're not in a big hurry, you don't have to have bromo seltzer when you're done. And so, it just kind of got late in the day. And he said, well, yeah, it's too late for you to go now, why don't you stay overnight? And of course, this goes on day after day. And the Levite is getting a little tired of it after a while, partly because he wants to get home, who knows what's happening back there, maybe his wife's going to get real upset. He does, we don't know what is, was on his mind. This guy was pushing Near Eastern hospitality a bit to an extreme here, as far as the Levite uh, was concerned. And so finally the Levite decided, <laughs> I gotta go, I gotta go home. Well, let's read what happens next in chapter 19, beginning of verse 10. But the man was not willing to spend the night. So he arose and departed and came to a place opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem, and there were with him a pair of saddled donkeys. His concubine was also with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was almost gone, and the servant said to his master, Please come and let us turn in aside uh, into this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. However, his master said to them, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not of the sons of Israel, but we will go on as far as Gibeah. And he said to his servant, Come, let us approach one of these places, and we will spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed along and went their way. And the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Gibeah. When they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Hospitality was obviously a little limited in Gibeah at that particular time. Here's Bethlehem, Jerusalem, or Jebus, as it was in those days. Gibeah is here, and just two miles north of Gibeah, right up there, was Ramah. So those are the three, four cities mentioned in this particular passage. So we're, we're in the hill country. We are up um, 2,000, 2,500 feet above sea level. We're traveling all along the ridge route, the route that connected all those cities through the center part. As I've mentioned to you before, uh, there was a route that came along the coast. That was the main route. It's called the Via Maris. It connects clear back over into Damascus and beyond. Uh, there was this ridge route, which picks up here and comes down through the center here and drops down to Beersheba. And then, of course, there was a minor route that went down through the Jordan Valley, and then a, another major route that went down through the uplands here called the King's Highway, connected the major centers through the highland here. So there were four routes. 
that traveled parallel to each other and there were connectors across in between. So they're on the ridge route and they're traveling to the north. Now it's very possible that the Levite's home wasn't terribly far away. Well, all we're told was that he was, this is Ephraim right in here. So the tribal heir of Ephraim is, is right in here. So we're just told that he was from an out-of-the-way place in Ephraim. So where is this out-of-the-way place? Well, we don't know. It could have been way down here in the southern part or further up in the north, somewhere in there, probably in the hill country, I would suspect, but not terribly far from where he was going. From Bethlehem here to Jerusalem, at that time, going the route that they would have taken, would have been a mere eight miles. You know, how, how long? Two hours? Uh, donkey back, maybe? And then going a little bit further on to Gibeah. Uh, Gibeah is only about an hour further north of Jerusalem by donkey. So we're not talking about much time here, uh, passing or much distance. In fact, from Bethlehem down here, all the way to the northern edge of Benjamin, where Benjamin connects to Ephraim up in here, was only 20 miles. Well, a good donkey on a not-too-rough road is going to be able to cover those 20 miles in a day, roughly. About the same speed a person walks along, because most people who were donkeys, some of them did walk, like the servant is walking here. The servant is probably leading the donkeys along the route with the concubine on one and, and the Levite on the other. And, and so they're, they're moving north here. And probably once they got to the northern border of Benjamin, it easily within another 20 miles, he probably would have been home. So we're only talking about probably two days' journey here. So the problem is that he allows himself to be held back and to stay there until it's in the afternoon. In fact, probably around 3 o'clock in the afternoon before he actually leaves, which means he's going to have to stay overnight, not terribly far down the road which means he's going to have to stay overnight at least twice on the road rather than if he had started out early morning, he could have gotten one day's journey and then the other day's journey probably got him to stay home overnight one night. But maybe he had a motel, a little idea, I mean, a certain amount of money set aside for possible two nights in a motel. I, I don't know, you know, but whatever the case may be. What we'll see was that it would have been a whole lot wiser for him to have said to his father-in-law, I'm out of here at sunup. We're not staying for any more food and whining and dining. We're out of here at sunup. Instead of allowing him to talk him into staying longer until it was late in the afternoon before he leaves, because that contributes greatly to the problem that we'll discover. But God allows it to illustrate the depravity of Israel at this particular time. And what's the depravity rooted in? Failure to believe and to obey the word of God. Well, we'll have to pick that up next week at that point.